Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host. And joining me, our co-host, Mel. Mel, we're going to talk about the Enneagram today. Ooh, ooh, you know I love talking about (laughs) all things personality. If I could have like a side podcast, I think the side podcast would be an Enneagram podcast. Yeah, pretty much all of your podcasts (laughs) have this flavor when you're interviewing people. Like I either know beforehand or during what your Enneagram is and it comes out. (laughs) I always always catch myself about to ask the question like, what's your Enneagram type? But then I don't want to be that guy that's just always asking. Play it cool, play it cool, but I want to (laughs) know. It's like a burning thing in the back of my head. Like ask this question, ask it. I, I know. To, I, I can resonate it. with that. I feel the same way. It's so fascinating. And today we're talking to Chris Hewitts, who we've had on the podcast before, but we do yep. a deep dive. If you need like an entry level to the Enneagram, you, you got to go back and listen to episode 43 of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, where we first interview Chris Hewitts. Uh, but this is a deep dive. And it, specifically, it so we, yeah, we talk about how the Enneagram kind of plays out in our lives in terms of pain and suffering. And how we deal mm. with that. So it is, um, it's fascinating. Mel, yeah, Davey. I, I was wondering how you see that play out in your life. You've listened to this interview with Chris. As you were kind of listening to that and you were thinking about, okay, you're an Enneagram 8, 8 yes. wing 7. How do you see your, your 8 uh, cope with or deal with kind of the, the hardship of, of life? Okay, well knee-jerk reaction, anger. Like I express myself (laughs) through angry. Like, am I angry at people? Am I angry at myself? Am I I angry at God? Like I I want my wrath to be known. And so (laughs) I've read that like uh, eights are guttural. And so um, did I say that right? I don't know. But that's what I, yeah. That sounds right. You think from the gut, you're a gut Sometimes you make words up and, or how you think they should sound. But anyway, so that's your wing seven that makes words up. Cause that's what my wife does. It's beautiful. She merges these, these words together. I'm like, that's not a real word, but I totally understand what you're saying. Cause that's the merge of two words. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. That's my life. That's probably why I love her so much. But like, so nine suppress their anger. Eights try to refine their anger. I just want to express it. And, um, Mm. when I am suffering, it plays out by me, like wanting to, um, exert power and control. And I just want to get everything back to, uh, where I'm comfortable. And I want, um, to, I want to fix it and I'm a doer. And so I want to, um, it's a challenge to just let the process of suffering play out because I'm always trying to cut it short. Um, and Mm. so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I do it. You said off the air, um, we were referencing something and you said something about expressing, you were of course expressing your grief. Is that Mm. how it plays out for you? It's like, if you feel something, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to express it. It's going to come out. I'm not going to suppress it. It's always going to come out of my mouth. You feel like that's the case? Yeah. I think that if I don't express it, then I, I, in my mind think I might spontaneously combust. I have to externalize (laughs) what I'm feeling right now. So of course, you know, we talk about all the time, like you should talk about your grief, but probably what you experience is that there are times that you need to internalize it a little more before you express it. Yeah. I actually memorized the verse Proverbs 29, 
2911, it says a fool gives full vent to his soul, but a wise man quietly holds it in. And I've had Mm. myself and my daughter memorize that to share it with me. So whenever I lose my cool, I just have to remember wisdom says that it is not wise for me to just blurt it out. I actually need to absorb this. And I know for some people that's totally opposite, but for my sanctification process, I got to simmer down. (laughs) That's really interesting. That's really interesting. My mom used to say, even a fool is thought to be wise when he keeps his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Also a good verse. She was basically telling me that I needed to stop talking as much. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, how about you, Davey? Uh, how does it play out for you with your Enneagram three-wing four? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm a three-wing four. And so I think it plays, I kind of find myself in the middle of those two quite a bit when it comes to my, you know, dealing with trial, dealing with suffering. It's funny I was first introduced to the Enneagram by um, Allie Fallon. We had her on the podcast, episodes seven and eight. And when she was coaching me on writing my book, she introduced me to, in just a side conversation. She was like, do you know your Enneagram type? And I'm like, no, I don't even know what the Enneagram is. What is this? <laughs> she goes, you're probably either a three wing four or a four wing three. And I said, well, how did you peg that? And she said, based on how I'm hearing you express your trauma or your grief. And I'm like, Mm. Hmm. So I've kind of done some digging on what that looks like, but I think my four is very comfortable. The side of the four wing is very comfortable with sitting in pain and sitting Mm -hmm. in trauma and expressing that and trying to figure out how do I formulate words around this? How do I help people understand? How do I even also find the, the idealistic uh, outcome of this? How do I find the beauty in this? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, hence, nothing is wasted. It's like my mind immediately went to, there's got to be some beauty in this somehow. Mm-hmm. In this like tragedy, there's got to be something that God is doing that he's mm-hmm. going to turn this around. And I think a, a four, when they're, when they're healthy, they don't, you know, when they're unhealthy, they can go into a woe is me type mentality and kind of slip into that vortex of like, are they ever going to come out of grief? A healthy four, I think, can identify the beauty in things. But then my three ends up causing me to kind of take the bull by the horns and go, oh, I'm finding the beauty in this. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's like, I'm going to make sure that this is not wasted. And so Mm. it's funny how when she, she kind of like heard the name of the book and, and like our mantra for this, she's like, you've got to either be a three or a four. Because my my three deals with it and says, okay, I'm going to kind of take the lead here and take the charge in this and try to help lead people in to an experience of the, the foresight, this, this beauty. And I feel like that's kind of how I've always, you know, reacted to pain is um, trying to turn it into something else, you know, mm-hmm. and that can be healthy and that cannot be healthy. You know, I think it cannot be healthy in the sense that I tend, I can tend to get out in front and strive and get out in front of what God is wanting to do and just kind of the natural timing of things. Mm. And then I can get really frustrated by it. And so it can cause me even some more undue pain because I'm striving and I'm trying, I'm getting out in front of God and um, it creates some chaos in, in my life and around, you know, the people around me. So that's I don't know. Really good. That's my assessment of myself. <laughs> well, thanks, Avi. Well, I'm excited for people to hear this episode. And um, as I was listening to it, I was like, I want more. And so if yes. you are one of our monthly partners, there's actually, um, you get access to our bonus episode for the month That's of November. Right. And I can um, assure you that you are going to want to hear more of what Chris has to say in his conversation with Davey. It's it's so good. Absolutely. So if you want access to that, go to nothingiswasted.com slash partners. And while you're there, we have opened up a new platform 
for sharing stories. <laughs> uh, this is just another way for you to submit your story uh, so that people can hear it and they can be blessed by it. And so that is nothingiswasted.com slash stories. And we're going to be sharing some stories of folks that you're not going to hear necessarily on the podcast or in other platforms. This is another way for you to just hear all the many stories. And most importantly, what we want is this is a, a space for you to share your story with us because we want to yep. hear it. We want to know how um, how God is intersecting your trials and your tragedies and your transitions yep. and bringing and life out of And we've already started. They've been so good. So mm-hmm. good. So um, another way you can uh, reach out to us is you can rate our podcast. You can review it. Leave us a review to read. Um, you can mention us on Instagram. Our handle is nothing is wasted ministries. Um, if you're listening to a podcast, just screenshot it, tag us, let us know you're listening. Uh, We always love to hear uh, what's in your headphones. So anyway, let's listen to your conversation with Chris. You might want to get a notebook first before you listen to this, because I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind. Like, get ready. (laughs) Chris, so great to have you back on the podcast joining me. Thanks so much for for being uh being willing to do so. Yeah, super great to be included again. So thanks for for making room. Well, man, last time we talked, um, and those of you guys who have not gone and listened to the first episode that we had with Chris Hewitt's, it's episode 43. You're going to want to make sure you go back and listen to that, especially if you're not um, used to or, or uh, you, you're not really understanding of what the Enneagram is. Chris does this phenomenal flyby of the Enneagram and goes through each one of the types and says, hey, this is what type one, type two, type three. I know this is rhetoric that we're talking about a lot on our podcast because we believe it's a tool that's super helpful to you as you're navigating whatever value you're navigating, you're under whatever pressure and stress and trial that that you're working through in your life. And so we wanted to bring Chris back on and talk some more about this because Chris, you have this workbook that kind of has spawned off of the sacred Enneagram, the book that you wrote. Um, tell me a little bit about this this workbook that you, you've begun to put out there. Yeah. So I think, um, I'm not sure what the publisher's honest take was. <laughs> On the sacred enneagram, but I'm I've actually been really, really, really surprised at um the traction it's mm. it's maintained. Um, it's not been out two years yet, and uh, it's already sold over a hundred thousand copies. Wow. Um, there's a Portuguese translation, there's a Korean and Russian translation um, soon to drop, and um, we did get a lot of of requests for sort of guides. Like I, I kind of like my friend Danielle Fanfares languaging on this, but like an inner work workbook. And Ooh, uh, yeah. I don't think we sort of had the foresight to think like there would be some use in a companion um, to sort of offer prompts and journaling to offer sort of space for reflection as folks were, were mm-hmm. working through the material. Um, but Esty Zandi, one of the folks that I had worked with early on at Zondervan with this, this book, um, sort of jumped on board and, and helped. And uh, I think we're going to have a really, really practical sort of guide to sort of nurturing your spirituality as you mm. continue to um, work through the, the constraints and, and the gifts, um, the constrictions and, and, and the liberating aspects of relating to your Enneagram type. And I think mm. this, this little workbook will, will be a, a super, super handy support to that. Yeah. I think one of the things I really loved about the Sacred Enneagram when I read it was it took a, not necessarily a huge um, 
nuance to the other works I've seen about the Enneagram, but I, but there definitely was a different tone to it in the sense of self-reflection, um, in the sense of spending time um, becoming more self-aware and tying it into how the gospel relates to the Enneagram. Um, that's what I think is really profound about the work that you're doing is the gospel overlaying with the Enneagram and how this uh, helps us to get back to you know, the, 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 the original tent, right? The image of God that, that was wired into us, but it was broken and fractured. Can you explain that to us a little bit and kind of your work with the sacred Enneagram? What exactly, what was the premise of that book? What, what, what led you to write that? Yeah. So there's, um, so the Enneagram, as we know it, um, and as we know it specifically in its relationship to personality structure is a fairly new teaching, right? Um, there's evidence of the Enneagram as sort of an esoteric process teaching or process um, sort of wisdom school um, that may be three or four or even in six or 7,000 years old. Mm-hmm. But this Chilean Gestalt psycho, psychoanalyst, Claudio Naranjo, who just passed away actually very, very recently, mm-hmm. took that Bergifian process overlay. He took Astri Chasso's um, the first four of these 108 Enneagons that this Boliz- Bolivian wisdom teacher, Oscar Chasso, developed. And then he took the DSM-3 back then, and he triangulated these things into sort of a way of mapping how people present what's going on in their sort of inner psycho-spiritual states. Mm. And, and that Enneagram of personality has, like I said, um, over the last 45 years, like, found more and more traction because I think what it does is it sort of describes the uncharted landscapes or the interior contours of of the parts of ourself that we don't often sort of enlist and inner witness to help draw attention to. Mm. Well, the stuff that's been coming out for the last 10, 20, 30 years on this has been fabulous, but I hate to say it, and I'm not trying to be salty or, you know, drag anyone, but it's generally kind of a regurgitation of what Claudio Norano started, mm. what Don Riso sort of developed and Helen Palmer developed around type descriptions. And there's not been a ton of super fresh um, stuff since then. It's just re-narrating, retranslating, sort of re-pivoting. So, of course, in the Sacred Enneagram, I, I had to at least do some of the review for folks who are, are going to be completely new to this. Right. But I actually wanted to take it um, to sort of an edge that I don't think has, has been really explored, which is once you know your type, what do you do mm. with your spiritual work, your inner work? How do you use um, your soul work to sort of loosen the, the prison that this type has become where we've incarcerated the best of ourselves, where we've incarcerated our, our truest self, our most authentic self and our essence. And so in the sacred Enneagram, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to say, how do you bring your type into the way that you nurture and nourish your spirituality so that there can be a, a greater sense of liberation, a, a greater connection to, to the, to divine love. Mm. And I think it's really practical. I think it's now I know my type then what do I do with that yeah. knowledge? Right. And if you're a person of, of faith, it's when you bring it into that aspect of, of, of your whole self and you really let it, I think, compassionately and, and gent- gently lead you to greater liberation. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really about, you know, it, from the gospel context, not letting uh, how, how the, the sin curse, so to speak, has limited 
uh, our ability to uh, to really become the person that God has created us to be, and it allows us to kind of untap what what is the redemptive purposes and processes that God has for us uh, as we're beginning to understand who we are, our our presuppositions, our proclivities, how we respond to different situations. I, I really love that because we. Our, you know, our audience, Chris, is is comprised of so many different types of people. But many people who are listening to this, they're walking through something difficult. They're walking through some kind of uh, tragedy that's hit their life, or some kind of trial, uh, consistent pressure or stress. And obviously, the Enneagram talks about those arrows of disintegration as you are, you know, as as you are under stress, and you're maybe um, the the ways that you would normally tend to respond to those things. In what ways do you think, and maybe we can do a little bit of a dive into this, in what ways do you think the Enneagram would be helpful for someone in understanding themselves as they're navigating a difficult valley in their life? Let's say they lost a, fam- a close family member or there's a divorce that's going on. You know, they're, 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 under, they're, they're walking through a divorce or they just lost their job or some, any kind of like stress or pressure that begins to build up in someone's life. How can the Enneagram be helpful in that? Sure. So, um, man, there's a lot in there and, uh, there's a lot I'd love to just sort of like untangle in that. Um, Let's untangle my, my it. Sense How's that sound? That, like, <laughs> the Enneagram, so I, I think when you look at the Enneagram of personality, and I think when you look at your type, um, you're, you're looking at sort of a container for this set of memories that essentially become the metaphors for, for what is meaningful in your own story, the story you have to tell yourself. Mm so that you can figure out who you are and how you've gotten this far so that you can figure out your own sort of ongoing path of becoming. So I think what the Enneagram shows us is yes, our souls are, they exist for a reason. We're, we're born to purpose to bring a gift into the world. And when we lose contact with that gift, we began suffering that loss of contact and the Enneagram's passions and fixations become the rails for the experience, the nine unique experiences of that suffering. Well, if that's already part of our our human condition, then I don't know that it matters what the subsequent sufferings or stressors or pains or losses in our lives will become because it's inevitable that we all will have a difficult journey towards the best of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But you see what's happening from our early childhood holding environments to the places and the people we are today is we're practicing for what's difficult. We're practicing mm. for the pain. We're practicing for the loss. It's, it's always been um, either a coping addiction or it's been a, a way of facing this pain and, and acknowledging it. And so I think when you can, can really sort of look at, at your Enneagram type and, and like one of my friends and teachers, Russ Hudson says, you have a type, but you're not your type. When you can look at your type as actually the prison where you've incarcerated the best of yourself and realize I can break these prison walls down. I don't have to decorate the cell. This isn't a life term. Mm. Then yes, you begin to sort of loosen these addictive tendencies that keep us disconnected from presence. And when we're disconnected from presence, yes, Failing relationships, yes, the, the, the loss of a job, yes, uh, attacks on our, our integrity or credibility or reputation, yes, the unexpected premature loss of, of loved ones can be absorbed. Mm. And it can be absorbed with, I believe this, with 
radical self-acceptance so mm. that we can live compassionately into these difficult aspects of being human. And, and so it's all there. It's all coded into yeah. type structure. It's, it's, it's like you have every key you need. And, and most of us don't even realize that keychain or that key ring is in our backpacks. And, and so we're right. trying to knock down doors, force doors open, or wait on the wrong side of a door that, man, it's never going to open for us. Yeah. What the Enneagram shows you is you've always had what you've needed to contend with the most difficult aspects of your, of your own story. Mm. It's just bringing those things into awareness. And we don't bring those things into awareness because a lot of people come across the Enneagram and they think, oh man, this describes my, 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 my foibles, my caricatures. It, it describes my idiosyncrasies, and, it, and it's just so fun. And the funner we turn this into sort of a parlor game, the, the, the more we sort of turn this into like a, a BuzzFeed, which Disney mm. princess personality test are you, the, the less honest we are with actually there's already pain forged within me. Right. And that first pain is I am no longer my truest self and I need to find my way home. Well, the mm. Instagram gives you the map. It shows you how to get back there. Man, I love so many of the things that you're saying right now, Chris. Um, first of all, I love that you use the phrase absorb, like we were able to absorb our experiences, even the painful experiences that are happening because of how we are understanding and being a lot more self-reflective of who we are, what our idiosyncrasies are, what our propensities are, how we would typically deal with a situation like this. One of the things we tell people as we're coaching people is, you know, on how to navigate their valley is that you have to come to a situation where you fully embrace your circumstances. You embrace what has happened to you. You know, Viktor Frankl talks about how the, the only thing that somebody can't take away from you is your attitude toward what is happening to you. You know, they can steal every single one of your freedoms, so to speak, uh, but they can't steal the way that you're approaching or the perspective in, with which you're seeing your circumstances. And what you're saying here is that no matter what has taken place in you, if, if there is enough self-reflection and, and enough understanding of kind of the perspective that in a lot of ways that God has on your situation um, and being able to see through those lens, then, you know, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is that you're able to navigate those things really well as, a, as opposed to the, alter, the alternate thing would be to, uh, to react or to cope or to, you know, act out or to, you know, respond with vengeance or to, you know, whatever, you name it, it, you fill in the blank, but there's an actual acceptance that can begin to happen in your circumstances. And not even that, a redemptive quality in which it, be, it can cause you to become an even better version of you as you're, can, as you're beginning to absorb the things that are happening around you because it's making you more aware of who you are truly and, and your identity in Christ. I, lo I love that. And I also think it's so imperative what you're saying right here that the Enneagram is much deeper than like what you said, a parlor game. You know, we, we get together with our friends and we talk about the Enneagram a lot. We're like, hey, what type are you? What type are you? But oftentimes it can become this excuse for, oh, this is why I behave the way I behave, as opposed to this path that, you know, or this, um, hey, this is a this is an indicator of where you are right now, but this is where you need to be going in um, relation to becoming the truest self or the best version of yourself. And so that it can kind of uh, create this trite conversation around the Enneagram rather than this really using this as a tool for understanding how to um, dig into the deepest, darkest parts of yourself. Um, that's amazing, man. I, I, I think that's so incredible. I want to do this exercise maybe because 
I have you, I have you here and you may not be able to tell me, but, and this may not be beneficial to our listeners, but I think it'd be helpful for me. And maybe it even helps the listener to be illuminated into the fact that how maybe their type, they can understand if they begin to uncover what they, who, what they are, as far as what Enneagram type they are, how uh, some of the ways that responding in their situations are beginning to make sense. I had somebody send me this description of how a type three, so I'm a three wing four, a type three responds in tragedy. And I'd never seen it anywhere else, but it made sense to me. Um, and it was just a couple lines. It was like, this is typically how a, a type three is going to respond in the face of, you know, horrendous tragedy. Is it that simple? Are there, you know, are there, um, kind of, uh, descriptors or categories or here's how someone's going to typically respond? Was that, was that just an oversimplification that, that this person sent to me or is it more complicated than that? Yeah. So it's what kind of bums me out right now is like the Enneagram meme culture is just on fire Mm. and, um, and it's on fire because it's like, I, I, I think, first of all, social media is part of the reason why a lot of people are drawn to the Enneagram. We've thinned out our identities right. by sort of curating these little digital brands and this sort of um, carefully constructed projection of our own ego mythology. And, and at the end of the day, we don't know who we are anymore because we're playing these sort of games of projection. So the irony is the Enneagram shows up on social media and it just is on fire there. And, 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 and it, and it's pointing that out to us. Mm. I love the sort of text threads and Twitter sort of shout outs or call outs and and some of the memes where they do say, here's, you know, how types order a pizza or here's how types, um, handle being at an airport or deal with tragedy <laughs> or whatever. Cause there can but be some I, humor I, in that sometimes you can go, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. That's me. You know? And generally we feel like, Oh yeah, that's, that's more or less true. But you see what, what's, what, what's missing in that is the nuance. Um, because if you're a three, like, okay, that's fine. You land on one of the, the nine bases around the circle. Now, if you know what your instinct is, if that's self-preservation, sexual or social, now you realize, Oh, here's my, one of 27 subtypes. Hmm. And if you know what those instincts are ordered, then now you know one of 54 instinctual variants or instinctual stacks. And then you know your wing, and all of a sudden you have 108 renderings of types. And then if you bring Don Riso's nine levels of development into these 108 renderings of types, now you have over 970 snapshots of what a person with an instinct and a wing on a level of development looks like. And then you divide that back by the nine types and you have 108, at least as far as where you have some material on, 108 ways of being a three. Mm. And that's where I think this is such a, such a profound tool because it's not you're dropped in one of nine boxes and you deal with tragedy one of nine ways or you order a pizza one of nine ways. It's there's at least 108 sort of psycho-spiritual states a three could find themselves in based on compulsions, based on mm-hmm. wings, and, and based on sort of their, their mental and emotional and, and, and spiritual well-being. And what happens then is you bring our human capacity for self-reflection into that, and it changes it even more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you might be, you know, a social sexual three with a four wing, 
at the third level on Riso's nine levels of development. But man, you line nine folks up who share all that, you're going to be completely different. Like mm. there's not a script. It's not determined or predetermined or, or fatalistic. Like it actually frees you into sort of these, these nuances of, of seeing what really is beautiful about yourself. Mm. And, 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 and I'm working on this sort of follow-up to the sacred Enneagram. It's going to be a book on belonging and it'll come out in, in the spring of 20, 2020. But fundamentally what I'm trying to say is if we actually can't practice that radical self-acceptance, there is no compassionate living for us. If any one part of me doesn't belong, then no part of me can belong. Mm. And I think what the Enneagram shows you is there's a lot of pieces to these, these fragmented puzzles that are our stories. And um, the work here is to, 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 to bring them back together, to let a beautiful picture emerge. And that's integrating all of the gifts of, of who we are. So, yeah, I mean, the memes are great. They're hilarious. Um, I, I get sucked into them. But I, I don't think it's as as, as reductionist or, or simple as as some of these sort of little, little uh, pithy things make it out to be. Right. Yeah. So what you just, you just labeled a bunch of different layers within each of these nine types. And some of these I've heard and some of these I haven't. I'm going to assume that most of our audience has not heard of any of these things, but you, you talked about instincts, um, kind of under the header of like these different triads, right? These different threes that the Enneagram tends to uh, collect around or incorporate around. Um, what are some of those? Can you give me some headers of the, some of those uh, different groups of threes and maybe unpack a couple of those for me? Uh, as far as like from a macro level, not necessarily specific to certain types, but what is the general understanding of those things? You got sure. social, sexual instincts, stuff like that. Yeah. So the the enneagrams instincts are are sort of I I, I like to 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 specifically suggest that they are let's say the residue of evolution left over in our DNA. So left to himself, my dog would be a wild animal. <laughs> like my dog would chase a rabbit into traffic because my dog's instinct for hunting um, is, is what controls my dog's sort of passion for once he catches this, the, the scent of a rabbit. <laughs> my dog can't stop himself. Like my dog can't train himself, but my dog can be trained. However, as humans, We've evolved, and, and and we can actually, and I and I believe this through through contemplative practice, train ourselves to um, discipline these compulsions in our unconscious, and and so in the enneagram, mm. these unconscious, deep deep seated biological like like uh, survival strategies are called the instincts, and 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 those have been defined as self preservation sexual or some of the schools call the sexual instincts one-to-one -one. and then the third instinct is is social and and when i introduce the instincts it's like you know we live here in omaha just just um uh, about 40 minutes south of the the omaha reservation you know 600 years ago when the tribe um had to survive our winters and our winters are brutal <laughs> that was their self-preservation instinct at play they somehow managed without heat and you know um concrete or brick or, mm -hmm. or wood homes to survive our 50 and 60 degrees below zero wind chill. Here comes the spring 
and on the other side of that self-preservation instinct, allowing for, for them to make it, just like in all of life, spring is the mating season, mm-hmm. right? And this is the sexual instinct showing up. Like we've survived, let's reproduce, let's procreate, let's push the longevity of, of, of our community or tribe mm-hmm. forward. And then nine months later, here's a bunch of new kids that need to be grafted into the community. <laughs> and that's your social instinct. Now, when I see it, my dog, it's like, the self-preservation instinct is 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 him grooming himself. It's him burying bones for the future. And he's not smart enough to realize that that's a good decision. But that's <laughs> self-preservation in him. My dog, if he wasn't neutered, would probably have zero guilt being non-monogamous and would probably mate. And he sometimes <laughs> um, marks a, a, a tree trunk or he smells a, a street sign post to see if there are dogs that actually are... Um, looking for mates and, and that's his sexual instinct and then my dog is a pack animal and that's his social instinct hmm. we see it in nature everywhere and and what we fail to do is reflectively observe it in ourselves but they're there hmm. and when you take these three instincts self-preservation sexual and social and you mix it with your enneagram types passion you get what are called the subtypes and so this is where you know a, a friend of mine beatrice chestnut spoke the complete enneagram actually describes in in pretty thorough detail the 27 enneagram types oh wow so when you look at a self-preservation three a sexual three and a social three there are similarities but man it's three completely different versions Mm. of threes and it gets wild because then no we don't have time to do all this but then one of those is the counter type and that's the three that doesn't look like a three and so there's always one of these three subtypes for each of the nine types that will chronically mistype. Hmm. So, so there's it's wild, right? There's a counter type for a three, a counter type for isn't it six and nine? Those three are gonna is that what you well, said? So there'll be nine counter types. So oh, like the okay. um, so, sexual one, the sexual five, and the sexual six are the counter types. The self pres two, self pres three, self pres four are the counter types. And then the social seven, social eight, and social nine are the counter types. And wow. those confuse everybody because that's <laughs> the happy four. That's the 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 the, the less heart forward two. Yeah. That's the super understated three. That's the the helpful seven. That's the active nine. That's the what we traditionally have called the um the counterphobic six. Hmm. Oh, it just gets super wild. I'm interrupting this important conversation for a really great reason. We want to make sure you know about all of the resources that are available to our Nothing is Wasted community. If you haven't heard us talk about it before, we have created a program that we want to make as value-adding as possible to your healing journey. Beyond the inspiration we all receive from our incredible conversations with our podcast guests, we want to make sure we are always taking it a step further by encouraging transformation in your life. One way we do this is with our monthly partner program. By making a recurring monthly tax-deductible donation to our partner program, anyone can access resource-driven content that goes above and beyond our normal conversations. For $5 a month, you can access a monthly bonus episode, 5 to 10-minute supplementary commentaries, and be the first in line for any special announcements or events that we may have. For $10 a month, you can access everything from the $5 a month tier, plus full videos of most of our podcast recordings, and a once a month teaching video where I share lessons I've learned during my own healing journey. 
Finally, for our $20 a month partners, you're able to access everything from the lower giving tiers, plus a monthly live Q&A with my beautiful wife, Christy, and myself. In addition, our $20 a month partners receive discounts on Nothing Is Wasted coaching and events. I know this seems like a lot because it is. We want your support to this ministry to be mutually beneficial, so please take advantage of all of these resources as you consider setting up this partnership with us. To find out more information about this program, head to nothingiswasted.com slash partners. Again, nothingiswasted.com slash partners. Now let's get back to our episode. Well, so what you're saying, though, and again, this goes back to this, like, the fact that the Enneagram can tend to be, because it's been so popularized, people can tend to oversimplify it. And when you're sitting around a group of, I think about our small group. Um, In fact, there are two people in in the room right now who are in my small group who also serve on our team as far as producing this podcast. And we talk about the Enneagram often. And we kind of, we kind of make jests a little bit sometimes like, oh, well, that's because you're a one, you know, that's how you're, oh, that's because, and what you're saying is, wait, no, it's way more complicated than that. And oh, yeah. I think what this does, though, what it helps you to do is it helps you in your interpersonal relationships to not just um, type somebody and narrow somebody down into the specific box. And so therefore you expect they're going to respond a certain way because you've you know nominally read about how this particular type tends to respond to the world. But it's that, no, this person has a lot more complexity to them and there's a lot more uh, space for me to be able to give grace even if I don't necessarily, you know, I mean, I've heard this before, right? I just, I just do not work well with eights, mm. right? Or I just do not work well with, it's like, wait, wait a minute. It's way more complicated than that. And so instead of us approaching this, like I'm, I'm typecasting somebody. And so therefore I'm ostracizing that person out of my, you know, realm. It's, it allows you the space to have compassion for people and grace yeah. and understanding and it flir- helps your re- interpersonal relationships flourish. For sure. Because I think one of the, the great strains in relationships isn't there's types you do and don't like. I actually do think when you, when you explore the, the complexities of these instincts, like I said, you, you get 27 subtypes. Well, actually, the Enneagram Institute, those guys actually take it even further and they say, these things are ordered. And so hmm. I'm pretty 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 dialed in that I am a social, sexual, self-pres eight with a seven wing. Well, if I was social self-pres instead of social sexual, I'd be completely different. Hmm. And so what usually happens in a relationship is it's our third instinct. It's the one in our blind spot that creates maybe the greatest type frustrations with others, or it's the blind spot instinct of someone that we maybe are having the hardest time with because if we park one of these instincts in our in our shadow if we park one of these instincts in our unconscious Mm. and we don't actually work with it we don't actually prioritize it we don't actually allow it to grow it's where we get in trouble Mm. so self-pres is in your blind spot yeah you're probably not going to ever be concerned about getting enough sleep or eating well or getting to the fitness center and you're probably not going to be as consistent, um, drinking water or doing your meditations. Like self-care isn't going to be that 
important to you. And you can see what happens to people where mm. self-present their blind spots, that's where everything catches up to them. You can see what happens to people with social in their blind spots. They don't have an outer observer. They don't know how they're impacting a group. They don't mm. really value belonging to community. Um, and, and that's maybe where in relationships we, we, we have collisions. And I think this, the, the, the greatest challenges in interpersonal relationships as it relates to sort of the Enneagram sort of highlighting what those strains might be is when your dominant instinct is the blind spot instinct of, of a friend or a partner and when simultaneously mm. their dominant instinct is your blind spot. You're completely mismatched yep. on the pure compulsive motivators of what shapes yourself and how you perceive, process, and live into your reality. Mm. And that's where you're going to bump into the wall all day. Because basically <laughs> for person A, it's like, well, this should be obvious for the other person. And for the other person, they're oblivious to it and maybe vice versa, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's, 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 this is the priority, the guiding priority of my life. And it means nothing to you. And somehow the guiding priority of your life, what is everything to you means nothing to me. And man, it's a bummer. <laughs> wow. Um, so let me ask you this. So what do you, what do we do about that? Because I asked this question because we try to help people avoid the avoidable pain, you know, preemptively, right. And, and deal with the unavoidable pain, you know, heal from cope with find purpose in, you know, cause there's, there's pain that is unavoidable to all of us. We're going to experience it as a part, as a part of the experience of life. There's suffering that is out there for us. And so like what you said earlier in this conversation, you're, you're essentially from the day that you're born, you're preparing for how you're dealing with that suffering, whether you recognize mm -hmm. it or not, whether it's directly or indirectly or vicariously, you're preparing for it. And so how most of the time relationships, most of the time, if we're equipped with the right tools, not all the time, but most of the time, the pain that we deal with in relationships can be avoidable pain by how we choose to interact with that person. So how do we use the Enneagram as a tool to avoid that avoidable pain in relation to other people based on what you have just been describing for us. Yeah, so so if it's if it's specifically as it relates to your instinct or your your subtype, it's it's learning to bring that blind spot instinct into awareness. It's realizing that yes, it is my lack of self-care that is going to constantly and chronically trip me up. And so it's building a rule of life around it. It's creating accountabilities mm -hmm. for it. it. It's like I said, it's like I would train my dog to leave it if my dog's chasing a rabbit towards towards oncoming traffic. It's learning to also train my compulsions. Mm -hmm. And like I said, um, you know, if you you bring that into your spirituality, I, I think contemplative practice is is the most effective effective way to do that. Mm. Now, if this is your Enneagram type's passion and, and how do you allow your passion to, to prevent avoidable pain, it, it's it's loosening the addictive grasp that this emotional passion has on your whole sense of self. And this is the thing. I, I, I think we, we, we generally are the source of our own pain mm. because we don't bring these things into awareness wow. and, and we become enslaved Chris, to them. Chris, if you were preaching right now, I'd say, say that again. <laughs> I mean, it's just like... It's very true. It, I, I hate to say it. I, I, I mean, yes, when my puppy passes on, 
I will be devastated. And and that's not me being the source of my own pain. That's me actually experiencing mm. the gift of what it meant to give part of my heart away in yeah, love. Right. So that pain is actually the evidence of, of something beautiful in us. Mm-hmm. That's but right. You know what? The rest of the things that that sort of catch up to us, um, it's it's kind of our fault. And and I think mm. when you look at this at the Enneagram, yes, there is one of the levels of development for all nine types where we make it everybody else's problem mm. and we blame and we project. That actually just creates more trouble for us. Mm-hmm. When we finally realize like, hey, I've done this to myself, then what it requires is um, compassion, but it also requires a sense of humor. Like, mm-hmm. and there I go again, because I've been conditioned to fall into these predictable patterns of, of not being awake, of not being present, of not being aware of me not loving myself or not accepting myself or not extending compassion inward. So I, I think that 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 sort of humor that we have to find is rooted in humility. And mm. you know, this is this is wordplay, but you know, the 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 word humanity comes from the Latin word um humus. And mm-hmm. humus is the same word for ground. And so we get this. Our humanity comes from the earth. From dust we came, to dust we shall return. Well, you also get the word humility. And and I think we can find Mm. the limitations of our humanity as a way of embracing humility, but it's also the exact same word that we get humor from. Mm. And I think we have to find the sense of humor by actually embracing the humility of our humanity that we are simply dust. Like, yes, we're we're, we're more than that. We're the the stardust of, of the existential beyond. But man, if we can't laugh at ourselves, like <laughs> if we can't realize like we're human and we're gonna act out as humans, then we're gonna harm ourselves. We're gonna beat ourselves up. We're gonna look inward at all of these things, project it outward, and it's gonna be a problem for everybody around us, which only makes it harder for us. Mm. And your type shows you how you do that in nine different ways. And it's it's it, I say this all the time. The Enneagram is a compassionate sketch of possibilities for who we can become when we say yes to our truest self. Mm-hmm. And, and when we don't over-identify with the, 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 the prison cell that type is, when we let our essence finally be free. But man, it's, it's going to be devastating to our ego. It's going to be devastating to the parts of us that spent our entire lives constructing and perfecting these personalities. These, these personalities are still the thing that keeps us asleep to our essence. Mm. And that's why I think a lot of our suffering is unnecessary. Wow. You talk a lot in the sacred Enneagram. I know and one of your biggest um, key messages is this idea of contemplative practice and uh, self-reflection. I think this is um, something that is, is becoming a lot more part of the rhetoric of today because I think we're realizing how busy and noisy our lives are with everything that we have a going on, how connected we are uh, and yet how lonely we are. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And all of the pings and notifications that are constantly vying for our attention. And so now people are starting to talk about the importance of mindfulness and contemplative practice and all of those things. Can you um, just unpack for me? What do you, what do you mean by what, is, what is the practice of contemplation and of self-reflection in terms of how to understand yourself better with the Enneagram? Yeah. So this, this is a great question because this is a, a part of our, 
our, our, our collective Christian identity that we have in a sense sort of severed from the body. We've been mm-hmm. orphaned from our historical memory. So, you know, when the great schism split the Catholic and the Orthodox churches and the Catholic or the Latin or the Western Pope excommunicated the Orthodox or the Eastern Pope and the Eastern Pope excommunicated the Latin Pope, there, there was a kind of dividing out of forms and ways that, that, that Christian identity and Christian spirituality had been nourished. And the um, more contemplative practices, the more prayers and, and, and methods of nurturing spirituality without words, without symbols, without images, was, was really being developed and perfected in the Eastern or the Orthodox Church. And so the Catholic Church was like, nope, you can keep that. Um, that's mm-hmm. not us. And then, of course, Martin Luther comes along and, and thinks he's reforming the whole thing when, in fact, he's only reforming half of it, um, the Catholic half, and mm-hmm. takes an even further step away from the Eastern Church doctors, the, the fathers and mothers. And, and so for, for folks who've been socialized in, in Protestant Christian faith communities, we're, we're, we're two huge steps away from some yeah. of the ways that our mothers and fathers at the very beginning of this, this, this movement connected with God. And, and, and so those are sometimes called cataphatic or apophatic practices, prayers with or prayers without words, symbols, and images. Mm-hmm. And what we do when we lay down words, symbols, and images, and we enter interior solitude, interior silence, interior stillness, is we no longer become the originator of our practices or our prayers, but we let God be God. Mm-hmm. We let God speak to us in silence. We let God remind us that in solitude, we can't earn the things that have always been ascribed, that mm-hmm. God has always loved us before we loved ourselves. And, and you see what this does when you, you engage these contemplative practices is it even heals your notion of what salvation is. Because so many of us in the West think, I initiate with prayer. I initiate with repentance. I initiate with understanding the path or the right choice or the right way of being Christian. And if I initiate with enough earnestness and sincerity, then God will respond with grace. And then if I receive that grace, I'm saved. Well, what we're doing is we are the initiator of our own salvation. We reach out, we hope for a response, we receive the response and live into the responsibility of that to prove our salvation. I think what contemplative practice reminds us is, no, God was always there Mm. and grace was always available and absolutely nothing could separate us from God's love, even ourselves, that we are not the initiators of this, but that God is and God abides and God is waiting. And so it's, it, it can be healing. It really can. It takes away all of this efforting. Now, real quick, it's also really difficult. Contemplative (laughs) practice is super hard. And so that's the sort of invitation to just also find a sense of humor. You're not going to be good at meditation. But that's the point. Mm. It's like one of God's love languages might simply be hangout. And it's, could you stop asking me for what you want? Can you stop saying you're sorry? I already know. And can you stop <laughs> telling me what you think about me? Could you just be quiet? Could we just be together? And could the confidence and the safety of that be how we experience love? Hmm. And so we need it. A lot of us desperately need it because we filled the silence with noise because we're afraid, because we're efforting too hard, because we think that we have to save ourselves. And I think when we dial all that back, 
that's when the mystery really starts to unfold. Wow. I think what's interesting, Chris, is you have articulated something that I think we all kind of feel in our spirit. We feel, we sense it, you know, if we have a practicing and, you know, a, a relationship where we're relating to God, we all sense sometimes the fatigue and the exhaustion of like trying to do more and trying to, you know, communicate with God and trying to, you know, and present our requests to him. And some of those things that are just like, can become exhausting. And there's something that's so liberating and fulfilling and like deeply satisfying to the soul to just sit and be with him. Like just, there's something about that. And it's like, we can't even, you know, scripture, I think even talks about that. We don't have words to say that the Holy spirit uh, produces utterances that are, that are, you know, groans that are beyond what we're able to even express. And is there something about the Holy Spirit inside of us that goes, you know what, this is so deeply satisfying to just sit and be and not have to try to put on some kind of pretense or put on some kind of a effort in order to find acceptance and belonging. Um, you know, so Chris, here's what I want to do because um, this has been this has been an incredible conversation. If you're listening to this and and you want to hear more from Chris, we're going to dive in just a little bit uh, in in a bonus episode with our monthly partners, and we're, I want to talk a little bit more if you can about this. Uh, maybe do some some work into this book on belonging that you're going to be putting forward. Maybe we can spend some time talking about how that belonging happens from the inside, but then also. Uh, how we find that in community with other people in relation to the Enneagram. And so if you'd be game for that, Chris, let's let's have a little bit more of conversation uh, outside of this interview. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Chris. Perfect. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Mel, I'm really curious, after listening to Chris Ewart's do you happen to know what your instinct is or what some people would call your the subtype of your Enneagram? Yeah. So if I remember correctly, you can have more than one, right? Right. Yeah. It's just, there's like one that's more dominant. There's kind of like a tiered effect, you know, one's primary, secondary, tertiary. Tertiary. Yes. (laughs) Um, I believe it is the one-on-one and then self-pres. What? Did you say one-on-one? Because Chris said not to call it one-on-one. Chris said to call it sexual, which you were very uncomfortable saying. I know. So I'm, that's why I'm saying it for you. On I your just want to say one-on-one. <laughs> do you know what that like, do, how does that like play out for you then? You know, I think for me personally, um, I really appreciate the finer things in life. I want the best of the best. Um, mm. I, um, I think that it means also I have a little bit of a rebellious streak in me. Um, and so those are the two gotcha. most common ways. Yeah. But yeah, what about you? What are your instincts? I think, and I'm kind of digging into this a little bit, but I think my primary is self-preservation three. Okay. Which is weird because I do not consider myself like a self-preservation person at all. But after reading the characteristics of a self-preservation three and that they uh, self-preservation threes achieve... Um, they believe that success follows doing the right thing. And so there's mm-hmm. kind of like a one nature inside of that. And I've kind of always felt that like if I, if I work hard, if I do the right thing, if I, then success is just going to kind of naturally follow. And so I don't mm-hmm. usually go and like chase success or for the, like the austere of success. Like I don't want to just like look like I'm successful. I want to actually be successful. And I think that's where and it's kind of to hedge myself a little bit. Um, is what I'm kind of discovering with that. So I feel like that's part of my motivation is like, okay, let's make sure everything's kind of safe and grounded and stable and, you know, that sort of deal. So it's interesting really when you good. start digging into those t- subtypes, isn't it? Because 
it can cause a, one type to look drastically different than the other part of that type. Oh, yeah. And he ways. was blowing my mind whenever he was saying there could be 108 different ways yeah. that each number could look. Now we all have to go and dig into 108 different types. <laughs> I know. Now I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Well, listen, if you are also intrigued on finding out more about the Enneagram and more about Chris Hewart's go and listen to Ryan O'Neill or Sleeping at Last podcast on why he developed the Enneagram songs the way that he did. He has Chris on to explain a little bit about those Enneagram types. And so we also want to, in the process of that, thank Ryan Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. Uh, it's incredible stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm really looking forward to next week's episode. Um, we have a lady named Joanna Denstadt. And she's going to have, um, speak to Davy a great conversation um, about her tragedy, her trials, and how she's using that, uh, how, she, how she's maximizing um, her pain to help mm-hmm. others in similar situations. So here's a little clip from um, their conversation. Two years after we were married, I had my first little girl and then very quickly the second and then Mm. very quickly after that the third and then very quickly after that the fourth and so you know for those Rose was going to kindergarten when I had Grant my little boy so I had four babies under going on seven almost Um, and life was full and busy and I was just stuck in a season of really trying to get out of anxiety, trying to be enough, trying Mm. to do the mom comparison thing, um, trying to be the perfect wife when I didn't sleep. And just really, I I remember praying and praying so often, like, God, take me out of this season of anxiety Mm. that I'm in. Do something and take this away because I am not thriving right now as a mom that I want to be to my little kids. And I was just in the trenches. I mean, so many moms are when you got little kids in the middle. Uh, I mean, you're just so needed in such a different way when they're all that little. Um, I had no idea that that my prayer would be answered by walking into the hardest season 